in a new section of Matthew's gospel. And the way that uh, Matthew identifies that for you is as you see in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 53, where it says, and when Jesus had finished these parables five times in the gospel of Matthew, it will say, and Jesus finished and these sayings, these teachings, these parables. And that's a marker in, in the gospel that you are now moving into a new section. We have seen in the last three chapters that it has been about the teachings and the parables of Jesus. They have been uh, recorded for us to show what Jesus is here for, what he is doing as he's inaugurating this glorious kingdom. But now we are going to see Jesus talk about his rejection. And that's what these chapters are all about and what our kind of... Uh, sub-theme here as we're in this section in the Gospel of Matthew will be, is we're going to see these pictures of rejection. And, and the intent of this in, in Matthew's Gospel is, is twofold. One, while the rejection of Jesus is building, we are going to see that Matthew is going to show us a Jesus by which a rejection of him is a completely wrong response. His great power is going to be on display so that you should believe that he is the son of God, that he is the Christ who came to give his life to rescue the world. But as the rejection builds, we're going to see Jesus use that to also teach his disciples because it's not only going to be his rejection, but it's going to teach us about our mission and who we are, and how we're ultimately supposed to be following in his footsteps. In talking about rejection, it kicks off for us with a, a picture of a lack of honor. Two uh, events are put together here, a rejection of Jesus and a rejection of John the baptizer. And we're going to look at these two accounts and notice what this means in their lives and then ultimately how we should look at our discipleship and our preparation to follow him as Jesus wants. It is an interesting picture that is given for us as verse 53 and verse 54 of Matthew 13 have Jesus essentially coming home. He is in Nazareth. It is a homecoming of sorts. And so he says there in verse 54 that he taught them in the synagogues and they were astonished by him. They are amazed by him. And we're told there that they are astonished and they say in verse 54, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works. Now you might think at the beginning here that that's a good response. They're amazed by Jesus. Wow, where did he get this wisdom? How is he able to teach the way that he does? And look at these miracles that he's performing. And you would hope that the next line would be, and they are all going to bow down and see him as the Messiah and begin to follow him. But notice that's not what happens. In verse 54, or verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary? And are these not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? By the way, you know two of those in the Bible. James is in there. Acts 15. And Judas, that's Jude. 
in the New Testament who wrote that letter. And then notice, and not also are his sisters here. This is sometimes surprising to people. Jesus had lots of brothers and sisters. And here is the question that is happening among the people. They're going, how can he be performing miracles and speaking with wisdom? We know this guy. He grew up here. For 30 years, he never did anything like this. There's nothing that was ever special about him. He's a carpenter's son. And he's the son of Mary. Nothing special there. And we know his brothers. Nothing special there. We know his sisters. There's nothing amazing there. And that's why they're making the conclusion in verse 56. Where then did this man get these things? 30 years of irrelevance in Jesus' life. He's bouncing around that Galilee area in Nazareth. And the reason the people of Nazareth reject him is because they are familiar with him. Which, by the way, I think is important to think about for a minute in this picture. Is this shows us that for the 30 years that are not recorded... It wasn't that Jesus was going around doing powerful teachings and mighty miracles. If so, they would have been like, oh, yeah, we're used to that. Yep, he did another miracle. I've seen that for 30 years of that guy. No, they're like, wait a minute. For 30 years, we haven't seen anything like that. Who is this guy? Where did he get these powers? Clearly, it comes from somewhere else because we know him. He's just a carpenter's son. How can he be doing miracles? He came from Mary. How can he teach with wisdom like that? Look at his brothers and sisters. He's average. Nobody in Nazareth said, you know, I thought he was the Messiah when he was nine. You know, I always saw it in him when he was a little kid. I was sure it was him. That is not how it went. It's funny. There's like these fraudulent gospels that talk about, you know, Jesus, you know, using his power to barbecue birds when he was like eight years old and things like that. There are writings that say that this shows that did not happen. He did not use miracles in his childhood because all of Nazareth goes, what? How are you doing this? You've lived here a normal life for 30 years as a nobody. And now you teach with authority. Now you possess this great wisdom. Now you are performing mighty works. And it's a cause of stumbling. It says they're offended. Now offended doesn't mean he said something offensive like he was ugly and rude and nasty. It's a stumbling block to them. They can't get past this. They're they're stuck. How can it be for 30 years you seem like average guy and now suddenly you're doing these things. It doesn't make any sense to us. And they're rejecting him. They are not accepting it. Which I want you to again underscore something else fascinating. Jesus is performing miracles and they're rejecting him. Well, there's a whole lot of people who think, well, if I just saw a miracle, I'd believe. You are wrong. (laughs) You are absolutely wrong. That he is performing miracles right in front of their eyes. They admit their miracles. They don't go, well, you know, that was a neat magic trick, but I think there's some kind of illusion there. They call it mighty works. They're saying it from their own lips. He's performing miracles. But because of his meager beginnings and humble start, they can't get past it. 
He's a carpenter's son. And we know Mary. There's no way he's messianic material. (laughs) There's no way that he has come from God. So how did he get these things? That's what they're asking. It is with great skepticism and with great rejection. And what is so fascinating about this is you will notice in verse 58, it says, and so he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. Don't read that to mean So Jesus' power is handcuffed because people won't believe in him. Now, think about what's always going on in the Gospels and what we've seen in this Gospel. When Jesus comes to town, what do people do? Bring the lame, bring the sick, bring the blind, bring the diseased. They're bringing demon possessed. Everybody's bringing them to Jesus. If you don't think he's from God, are you going to do that? No. And so here Jesus is in Nazareth. And here is this opportunity for the town to experience the blessings of God. And they're unable to experience it and miss out. They miss out on what Jesus could have done for their lives because they refuse to believe. And that is uh, an idea I want you to hold in your mind through this lesson. They missed out on what Jesus could have done for them because they would not believe. In fact, you'll notice that Jesus doesn't seem to be surprised by this. He just simply makes the statement that a prophet can get honor anywhere except in his hometown and in his own household. And you want to talk about the truth of the matter. Remember, Jesus' brothers did not believe him. I just, again, I cannot imagine what dinners looked like in the, the, the Mary household every day when the brothers don't believe and he is the son of God. And you can imagine Mary like, yeah, it was a miracle. And the kids still don't believe that just, that's a whole side thing. But that's just, I mean, think about that. You think you have family dinner problems. There's gotta be some dinner problems, arguments over Jesus as the son of God. And as they're sitting together, they don't believe. And Jesus will say, I don't even have honor in my own house. My brothers don't even believe me. Uh, They they were mocking him and rejecting him. They didn't believe until after the resurrection. And here is the the hometown. And the problem is, ah, we know that kid. We saw him go to school over there every day. There's no way he's the one. And so they miss out. They miss out. Because Jesus doesn't match their expectations. Because they're too familiar with him. And he is not doing what they think he would have done. Or come from where they thought he would come from. And so Jesus has no honor in his hometown. Now hold that idea. This chapter break may cause you to want to leave the scene. But this next scene is illustrating this ultimate rejection. In chapter 14 and in verse 1, something interesting happens here. We're told that Herod hears about the fame of Jesus. But Herod draws a curious conclusion about the fame of Jesus. Notice in verse 2, here's his conclusion. This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Hmm. There's a lot of hmms in that. First of all, raised from the dead, what happened to John? We, we, what? What? what, what 
Why does Herod think that Jesus is John the baptizer raised from the dead and the raising from the dead is now how John is able to perform miracles? Because John didn't do that before. And now all of a sudden he thinks it must be that. Well, now the, the account will tell you what, what, what's happened in verse, verse three. Four, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip's, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Interesting scene. Here's the explanation. So Herod thinks that Jesus is John raised from the dead. Well, why is John dead? Well, here's the scene is that Herod had John arrested and had him put in prison. Well, why was he imprisoning John? What did John do that irked Herod so much that Herod decided he would arrest him and put him in prison? And we're told the only reason Herod didn't kill him was because there in verse 5, he feared the people because the crowds perceived John to be a prophet. So it would have been bad PR, political polls turned against you, if he'd killed him, so just arrest him, make his life miserable, shut him up for a while and put him in the prison, and that way that'll solve it. But notice why he's imprisoned. Because he kept telling Herod, it's unlawful, for you to have your brother's wife. How about that? The reason he's in prison is because John kept telling him, you're in an unlawful marriage. <laughs> how about that? I wonder how many times do you think John said that to get himself imprisoned? Could have been just once. How many times do you think John had to keep telling him that before finally Herod said that's enough and puts him in prison and wants to kill him over it? Probably not once or twice. Probably quite a bit. I love how the text reads that he kept telling him it's not lawful for you to have Herodias. In fact, I do want you to note how the text describes this. It describes her as still belonging to Philip still describes her as Philip's wife. Isn't that interesting? Even though Herod and Herodias are married, legally under Roman law, the scriptures go, that's Philip's wife. And John is running around saying, it's not lawful for you to have her. It's not lawful for you to have her. It's not lawful for you to do this. This is an unlawful marriage. Don't do that. And he did it so much that he got himself thrown in prison. Now watch what happens in verse six. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and it pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. There's a lot of grossness in that sentence. So the woman you're married to, her daughter is dancing in such a way that makes you so pleased that you make an oath to say, I'll give you whatever you want. Right. Verse eight, prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. 
because of, but because of his oaths and his gifts, he commanded it to be sent and or commanded to be given. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And he brought it, she brought it to the mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. That ending is just unbelievable. Bad enough that you say, oh, when he lost his head. But no, then the head is presented to the daughter who then presents it to the mother. This is a wicked time. And a time of where this rejection is ultimately illustrated. Why did John die? Because he proclaimed sin. He was arrested because he was proclaiming sin. He was imprisoned because he was proclaiming sin. And he was killed because he was proclaiming sin. This rejection all the way through in the life of John is seen through Herod. All right, so for this morning, I want to take four quick applications, four messages about what we are learning here regarding these pictures that are presented to us about the rejection of Jesus and the rejection of John. This first point is one that I wouldn't think I would have to make. This should be a three-point sermon, but it had to be four because where we are in our world and where we are in our society demands that we say this. It it, it should be a no-brainer, but here we go. There are unlawful marriages. There is such a thing before God as an unlawful marriage. The government approving of a marriage does not make the marriage lawful to God. And that's what you have here. Herod and Herodias. Nobody's suing them. Oh, that was fine. Fine under their Roman law. No big big deal. But I want you to see that John keeps telling Herod, your marriage is unlawful to God. And so let's make this first point. It does not matter if our laws grant you a divorce that doesn't mean the divorce is lawful to God. It doesn't matter if our laws grant you a remarriage that doesn't mean that it is lawful before God. It doesn't matter if our country redefines marriage to be whatever they come up with next. It doesn't make it lawful before God. It doesn't matter how our country defines it. It doesn't matter what they say is lawful and not lawful. And here is the great proof of that idea. What was allowed by the authorities and by that culture and by that government was not lawful before God. God's law was very simple. Genesis 2.24, we will get to eventually Matthew 19 as well. Marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And here is this proclamation that John is making, that it doesn't matter what the government says. It doesn't matter what a culture says. It doesn't matter what a society says. It doesn't matter what a church says. And it doesn't matter what a preacher says. It matters what God says. And God says 
that this is what marriage is supposed to be. This is how God defined it, a man and a woman for life. And so just because our society says a marriage is fine, a divorce is fine, a remarriage is fine, it's all fine, it's all fine, it's all fine, does not make it lawful before God. Number two, one of the great challenges you're seeing here is a willingness to proclaim and hold on to a truth that is rejected by culture. Are you impressed by John? Put yourself in his shoes for a minute. Think about his circumstances. Would you say what he said if that meant you were going to go to prison? Would you tell Herod and keep telling Herod and keep telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have her. It's not lawful for you to be married to her. This is not lawful before God. Would you keep saying it even if it were to get you imprisoned? Or do you think there would maybe be a point where we would go, you know, I guess I might need to stop saying that. (laughs) Maybe I won't say that truth anymore because I don't want to be arrested. I mean, you can imagine John's disciples might have been coming to John and saying, John, you might ease up on that. It's not a lawful marriage, but he's getting really upset. He's going to arrest you. He wants to kill you, John. John, maybe you should go preach somewhere else. Don't quit talking to Herod. You can go help out in some other ways. Stop telling him that. I can't imagine what that temptation would have been like. I'm sure it was great. It would have been so easy for John just to go, well, I already told him once, you know, he knows. He kept telling him and telling him and telling him and telling him until he finally died for it. There is a courage. And there is a resolve that is being portrayed here of a willingness to proclaim the truth. And hold on to that truth, even if your culture doesn't like it. And even if your culture rejects it. We have to be mentally ready for that idea. That there are things that we hold on to. And there are things that we have to say that our culture will not like. And we must be willing to do just as John did which is not shrink back, not hide, but to say what the word of God says. Which leads to the third point, and really I think is the big idea of what this is all about and why the title of this lesson is No Honor, is that there is a pattern that is being put forward for us. There is a pattern of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You might remember that John the baptizer is set up for us as a forerunner of Jesus. Please consider that his act of being a forerunner was not merely in the first few chapters. He is still a forerunner. For he is now forerunning a rejection, an arrest, and a death. And you could put, ironically, a resurrection because what does Herod think? That John's raised from the dead. Jesus is going to be rejected, arrested, killed, raised from the dead. The disciples are going to be rejected, arrested, and killed. 
and obviously on the great day, raised from the dead. And so it is with us. The pattern of being a disciple of Jesus has always been pictured as not having honor in this life. I think that's hard for us. I think if we're honest, it is really hard to get our minds around the idea that we could have people that we care about people that we even don't know, people who are strangers, or even a society that will not uphold us with honor because we are disciples of Jesus. That's what's happening here. And Jesus said it many times, but I'll remind you of one of those places that we see back in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Interesting that Jesus reminds and says, Actually, there's a forerunner in front of the forerunner, the prophets. They also were rejected, arrested, and killed because of their proclamation of the word of God. This is a constant picture that we are going to experience the same rejection. Please hear these words and and just start getting your mind around this idea. There may be a time. There just may be a time where people are going to be so angry at your stand and holding to the truth that they would want you dead. That's what they're experiencing in these days. John kept telling Herod, it's not lawful. And Herod wanted him dead. And the only reason he didn't was because it wouldn't have been politically advantageous for him. If it had, he would have done it. But since the crowds regarded him as a prophet, he didn't do it. Someone else ended up carrying it out instead. Friends, would we be willing to die For saying what the word of God says. That's a big one, isn't it? I already tried to stub our toe back on going in prison, right? That was two points ago. Would you you go to prison for it? It's like, it would have been a whole lot easier just to dial it back, say some comforting things. It's okay. But the text pushes it forward. John's willing to die for this message. He will proclaim the truth regardless of the consequences. How easy it would have been for John to quit saying anything about Herod's marriage. How easy it would have been to just go somewhere else. Go talk to some receptive people. People who want to hear this message. And he doesn't do it. He kept telling him. And he lost his life for it. And so we must be willing to accept that being a disciple of Jesus means no honor, that we may not have honor, 
that people will hold us in low regard, people will shame us, at minimum, be accepting of that reality because we don't state what the world states as truth. Which leads to my fourth point and also a very important point. What we have the tendency to do is refuse God's message of change because we don't like the message. You'll notice that Herod had a choice. Herod's choice was very simple. Receive the message from the messenger and repent. Or reject the message and reject the messenger and ultimately condemn himself. And Herod chose the latter. Herod chose to reject the message, reject the messenger, reject the messenger even to the point of his death. And you'll remember that Back in chapter 13 that we just looked at, the people of Nazareth have the same choice. Will you accept Jesus and accept his message and accept who he is or not? But the people of Nazareth reject the message and reject the messenger so that there is no belief there is how that paragraph ends. They refuse to believe. And they miss out on what Jesus could have done for their lives. Herod and this courtroom here, this throne room scene, they all miss out on what John could have done for their lives in proclaiming the good news of Jesus. They miss out on all of that because they refuse to repent. And I want us to think about this idea for a minute. It is easy to refuse to repent. It is easy to reject the message because we don't like the message. We just don't like it. Herod did not like this message. (laughs) There's nothing to like about that message. And so he wasn't going to listen to it and tolerate it. And I think one of the problems that we can encounter in our world, not only as we proclaim it, but even among ourselves as we are uh, adopting the thinking and ways of this culture, is that the idea of repentance suggests, implies, confirms, we're not sovereign over our lives to do whatever we want. There is somebody higher than us. That's the only need for repentance. If the, if, the, if the standard is, do you do what you want and there's no one higher than you, then there's nothing to repent of. You're just doing you. You're just living your life. You're just doing what you think is best. You're just happy-go-lucky. I'm the ultimate truth. The buck stops with me. So why do I need to change? Repentance demands there must be someone higher than you and you've done something wrong and we don't like either of those messages. We don't want to say we've done something wrong. How dare you tell me that? I must be doing everything right and you need to affirm that in every way possible. And to suggest that somebody I am going to be accountable to? No, I am the greatest power. So I'm asking us to not refuse the message and to refuse repentance because we don't like the truth. Because at the end of the day, Your feelings about truth do not change truth. We're we're working on this. We're we're trying to change this truth, but let's, let's, you, you can't change this. 
What you think about truth doesn't change it. I don't like that the sun comes up that early. But my disdain for the early sun does not change the fact that the sun comes up when it does. And it doesn't matter what I think about it. It doesn't matter how much I want to change it. It doesn't matter what I want to believe about it. It's still a truth that exists. It doesn't matter what you think about gravity. You may not like it. You may disagree with it. You might think it's useless. You may want to change it. You may not even believe in it. But it doesn't change its existence. And it doesn't change its impact on you. And friends, the truth was, Herod was in an unlawful marriage. And killing John did not change that. Ignoring that truth did not change it. Pretending he didn't like the message or messenger didn't change it. He didn't agree with it, but that didn't change it. The same with the people of Nazareth. The people of Nazareth look at Jesus and say, he can't be the son of God. We know who he is. We know his family background. We know his roots. We've seen him grow up. He can't be the son of God. But your feelings about Jesus do not change the truth about him. And not honoring him as Lord does not change the truth that he is Lord. And you not liking that he's Lord doesn't change the truth that he is Lord. And you not agreeing with his teachings does not change the fact that his teachings are truth and absolute. There's an interesting thing about truth. It doesn't get a vote. It just is. Whether we like it or not, it just is. And we abide by that in so many different ways in our world. And we try to run up against it as many ways we can. But at the end of the day, gravity is still gravity. And at the end of the day, Jesus is still Lord. And his word is is truth and we have a choice and I am asking you this morning to not refuse God to refuse Jesus or to refuse his teachings because you don't like the message it's still truth it's still relevant his words are truth And might I say it like this as we conclude. Our resistance to the truth is irrelevant. I can resist gravity all day long and it doesn't matter. It still is. And we can spend our whole lives resisting and resisting and resisting God. But at the end of the day, it still is. He is God. He has called for you to come to him 
and follow him and obey him because he's Lord. And no matter what we think about him or think about what he said, it's truth. And we must give in to him. What truth about Jesus are you resisting today? And can we help you end the resistance and come to the truth of Jesus and follow him with all of your heart? Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would give us repentant hearts, soft hearts, to hear your truth so that we would receive the message that we are off the mark and be willing to change. Lord, I pray that you would humble us Humble us in a way so that we would receive your truth, that we would stop resisting what you've told us to do, that we would listen to your teachings, and that we would be willing to embrace your word regardless of the consequences, regardless of outcome, regardless of the lack of honor that we may have as your disciples. Lord, I pray that we would seek and only seek the approval of you, and not the approval of this world. Help us to be faithful to your word. Help us to be willing to faithfully proclaim your word. And help us to be willing to faithfully proclaim your word no matter what may happen as we do it, Lord. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. And thank you for showing us truth because the truth is we are worthy of judgment. And we know, Lord, that all you are trying to do is save us from the judgment to come. So thank you for your revelation that reveals how we need to change. And thank you for your son that makes it possible. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to the truth of Jesus Christ this very day before it's too late to turn away from your sins, be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, to give your life to him. Why keep resisting him? Why continue to fight against him? He wants you to be with him for all eternity, and that's why he's given us these teachings. If we can help you in that, will you let us know today? You can talk to me afterward. Talk to someone next to you if you're interested in learning more and helping you end that resistance, or you can come forward now while we stand and while we sing.